Thanks for joining us today for Sacktown Talks. Today we have a special guest, Senator Scott Weiner from the seventh, uh, the eleventh Senate District, encompassing San Francisco and uh, San Mateo counties. Uh, how are you doing today, Scott? And thanks for joining us. Uh, I'm doing great. Thank you for having me, Scott. Um, you know, San Francisco has done a great job uh, with the COVID crisis, uh, about 2,300 cases and, and only 40 deaths. Um, you know, in, in you know being on the ground there, how has the COVID crisis affected the city? Yeah, so, um, you know, of course, 40 deaths is 40 too many, 40, 40 tragedies for 40 families. So uh, it's, you know, we, we mourn uh, their deaths. But when you, you know, look at the, the fact that that New York was uh, celebrating uh, or, or at least, you know, really happy about the downward trend and going under 100 deaths in one day. And San Francisco has had 40 deaths since the beginning of the uh, of the pandemic. Uh, I think it does speak volumes to the both the political leadership in San Francisco, our mayor, London Breed, as well as the public health leadership in our city under our director of public health, Grant Colpack. San Francisco is a city that gets public health, um, that understands its importance, that listens to public health authorities. Uh, due to the uh, horrible impact of the HIV AIDS pandemic in San Francisco, we have very robust public health infrastructure uh, and, and it really showed. So I'm proud of San Francisco. People here are um, I think feeling good about the direction that we're that we're going in, and uh, uh, but also appropriately cautious. Yeah, that's an amazing stat. You know, San Francisco is such a you know a city much like New York. A very a lot of people living in a, in a small confined area, and it's just amazing um, that they have so few uh, small cases in comparison to these other um, you know areas. And is there is there a few things that you can attribute that to, Scott? Well. I mean, that's a really important point because, you know, unfortunately, due to the experience of New York City, uh, there was a, there is a narrative that some are pushing, which was started by the governor of New York, that somehow being a dense urban environment means that you're uh, a terrible breeding ground for COVID-19, which is false. So New York City, uh, you know, and New York State, there was a delayed response in uh, shutting things down. The mayor of New York delayed, the governor of, of New York delayed even more. Uh, and as a result, um, that was a significant factor, it appears, in how bad things got uh, in New York City. There are other factors, to be sure, uh, but that was one of them. And as we know from recent studies about the U.S., even a one-week delay in acting can have profound impacts on how bad the, uh, the impact is in a certain area. Uh, and so, and so after the governor announced that New York City was being hit so hard because of its density, that became this narrative. But when you look at some of the densest cities in the world, Tokyo, Taipei, Hong Kong, um, et cetera, these are cities that have, of course have struggled with COVID like everyone has, but they have been able to quickly control it every time, Seoul as well. Um, and you have a city like San Francisco, which is the second densest, uh, large city in the U.S which has had a very different um, experience in New York City, or Los Angeles, which has had a, a more severe impact than San Francisco, for sure. But even L.A. is in a very different universe than New York City. And then you have low-density areas that have been hit very hard. And so it's not about um, housing density. It's not about urban living or lack of urban living. 
It's about the public health response. And the reality is that Mayor London Breed, as well as Mayor Libby Schaff from Oakland and Mayor Sam Licardo uh, from San Jose and our uh, health officers from the core Bay Area counties all acted quickly and decisively in going into a shelter in place before anyone else did it. And that is a key reason why we have had fewer cases. And if you look early on, one of the first hotspots in the United States was Santa Clara County, where San Jose is right. in the South Bay. And, 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 you know, Santa Clara County is not in the same universe as New York City or in New Orleans or in Detroit, uh, because again, the Bay Area acted early and decisively. Yeah, it's really amazing seeing the numbers now where you're seeing the Central Coast and the Central Valley surpass uh, the Bay Area, which is much more uh, you know, populated and, and had much earlier outbreaks. So that's really uh, fascinating when you um, compare the rest of parts of the world and, and you know, attribute that to the public health officials and the Bay Area's earlier response. Um, a lot of us have been you know, sheltering in place now for two and a half months. Um, what did sheltering in place look like for you, Scott? Um, it was uh, um, not like anything I've ever done before. I, when you are um, an elected official, uh, we are wired to want to be out and about, to never be home, <laughs> to right. be around as many people as possible. You have to like being around people and interacting with people in order to be um, a successful and happy politician. And so for me, you know, I live in a 500 square foot condo in the Castro. Um, you know, and normally I'm, even when I'm in San Francisco, I'm here just a little bit where I get home at nine o'clock at night, you know, eat a burrito while I'm watching the news and then go to bed and wake up and leave again. And so, uh, spending that much time at home was not something I'd ever done before. Uh, and, uh, and I was really concerned about how effective I would be in doing what I needed to do as a leader during the pandemic. <clears throat> and it turned out that it, it was okay. Um, I was able to uh, be in constant contact with my staff, both my district staff, who were just working so hard every day and still are um, to help people with unemployment or food benefits or renter assistance or whatever else, working with my capital staff to make sure our legislation stayed on track, working directly with a lot of constituents and with small businesses in my district and nonprofit leaders. Um, and I, I think I, we've lost count at this point how many uh, digital town halls uh, that I've done probably about 25 at this point. And what I actually learned, which I had never really thought about before, is that when you are doing more things digitally, even though it's a lower quality interaction than when you're in person, you end up being able to touch a lot more people. So uh, when I would you know, do a traditional town hall in my district at an elementary school or a rec center, for example, it might be that 80 or 100 or maybe on a really, really good day, 200 people show up. If you hit it out of the park, maybe you hit 250, 300. Right. When, when, I, when you do a digital town hall, um, you know, when I would do a Facebook Live, um, you could have 2,500, 3,000 people who watch at least a part of it. So it's a lower quality interaction, but you reach a lot of people who will never you know, go and travel to the elementary school to see you live, but they will tune in for 10 or 15 minutes to watch you on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter. So when this is over, we're going to continue to do some of the digital stuff in addition to in person. Um, 
And so it was all, um, it, it was, it was actually better than I thought it would be. The one big difference is I was super busy all day, every day, you know, from eight in the morning until about six at night. But the difference is there were no events to go to in the evenings or the weekends. And so that was what was very different that you had some time all of a sudden to be a real human being, which, uh, is not something I'm used to. <laughs> Uh, you know, you touched upon, you know, staff and, and kind of managing uh, your staff remotely. Um, have you found any difficulties kind of interacting with your staff while not being able to see them every day? Uh, no, not really. It actually has worked out well. I mean, I, I don't subscribe to the school of thought. There's a lot of hot takes about what the post-COVID world is going to look like and all these permanent changes. And no one's going to work in person anymore. It's all going to be remote. I think that is not accurate. It's way too early to to make those kind of broad predictions. Um, and I know that, you know, I have staffers, let's just say I have a lot of friends working from home who are itching to like go back to the office. Um, but, uh, it's worked out well with the, I have to, I have to really give enormous credit, uh, to the staff in the Senate, our rules committee, uh, staff, uh, the, the leadership staff in the Potem's office, just doing a fantastic job making sure that all my staff could work from home. Um, also, the way they set up our new style of hearings, uh, the Senate just did an excellent job. So they've really responded well. And so my district staff, uh, what they had all the capabilities technologically that they needed to do what they needed to do from home, uh, phone, email, et cetera, um, uh, logging into the system. Uh, and then my capital staff as well. I've uh, talked to them all on a regular basis, email, phone, texting. Um, uh, so, you know, zoom, uh, so it's worked out well. I, I miss them when I'm in the Capitol now and I go back to my office, it's sort of weird to be the only person there. And I miss having that, um, you know, direct interaction with my staff. Right. Um, but it, it worked out well, better than I thought. Um, kind of, you could just mention that you've uh, been back in Sacramento lately. Um, I know the Senate has allowed some remote hearings and things like that. How often are you back in Sacramento versus, you know, staying at home? Yeah, so we've now been in session two weeks. I'm in Sacramento all week. So we're, we're actually, they've been having hearings almost seven days a week. In fact, I think there's a budget subcommittee hearing today, Memorial Day. Um, so my, I've been in hearings generally, you know, I, I've been going up Monday, coming back Friday, um, and having hearings, either presenting a bill or hearing a bill as a member, um, of the committee on pretty much every day. Uh, so I have been, uh, in Sacramento. I go to the Capitol when I have a hearing or to present a bill. And then I typically um, uh, spend maybe a little time in my office, but then I go back to uh, to my apartment in Sacramento and just do my work there as if I were quarantining in San Francisco. Uh, so I do digital town halls for my apartment in Sacramento when I'm up there, uh, constituent stuff, meetings by Zoom, via Zoom. Um, and so it's been Monday to Friday. I think after this week, we're... From what I understand, we're going to go back to more of a normal schedule where we have floor session Monday and Thursday. And so it's more of a Monday, normal Monday to Thursday schedule. We, we're in this three week period now where we're just trying to jam through and get done with all of our policy committees in a very condensed, uh, in a very condensed time frame. Uh, but it's been, and I will also say that the Senate, once the Senate decided that people could get an accommodation to do remote participation, but could not vote remotely. Um, and that came about, we had changed our rules back in March to allow for remote voting. 
Um, but then, as you know, the assembly decided they weren't going to do anything remotely. And I think it created a little bit of an awkwardness. Um, and so I, I think the Senate leadership, and I understand why they made this decision, decided not to allow remote voting. Uh, and, and so, and so that the very few senators have actually participated remotely. Um, so there are senators who are appearing in person who I, uh, um, was not expecting to be there in person. Have you been told or are you, are you expecting any changes during floor sessions? Um, is it going to be happening in the Senate chambers or are they going to try to space you guys out a little more? Have you guys been informed on that? I, yet? I, I've not been, we've not been, or I have not been informed yet. I, you know, I do think for the Senate floor session, you know, assuming that we have, I mean, let's say we have 34, 35 people there, and especially since early on, other than voting on the budget in the month of June, there's not going to be anything monumental happening on the floor. So I could see, you know, I don't, but let's assume we have 34, 35 members there. Um, we have all the space in the back of the chambers where staff normally sit. Um, and so we can put, we can space members back there. They could also potentially put members in the front row of the gallery um, in the, you know, above uh, the chamber. So I think that you, we probably could, uh, accommodate for, you know, you know, 30, 35 members in a chamber. Um, there's also the possibility, uh, and again, I don't, I'm not, I'm just, this is my own speculation. No, I have no reason to believe this is true or not true, but we could, if we coordinated with the assembly and we're all having short floor sessions, we could, the Senate could use the assembly chambers if the, if the assembly would allow it in a very spaced way because it's twice right. the size. So, I'm sure we will uh, um, figure it out. Yeah. As uh, the end of session last year, you know, you guys can find a way if you want to. Um, yep. You know, uh, there's a $54 billion budget being planned. I know the Senate has proposed kind of a different way of, of looking at the budget. Kind of, Can you talk to us about, you know, how you're looking at the budget and kind of what your priorities are in this budget? Yeah. And it's, a, it's really tough because we just don't, I mean, not only did will we not know the bottom line until the July tax returns come in and we get just a little bit more data about how tax revenues in general are deteriorating, but we also just don't know what's going to happen with Congress. I mean, if Congress comes back and does what they should do and say, do a trillion dollars for state and local. And if, if half of that goes to states, you know, and it's done by population, California could end up getting 40, 50, 60 billion dollars. Presumably we would split that over a couple of years. And again, I'm all just speculating here, but you know, we could end up, if there's a robust federal response, we could significantly reduce that deficit or it could be something smaller. So, um, we're, you know, the dust isn't going to settle until later in the summer, probably in August. I assume we're going to have to make significant adjustments to the budget. Um, and I, and I think there's not total agreement on what the actual deficit is. Um, I think it may be lower than the 54 billion that the governor is proposing, but I think it's good to be cautious here in, in, in setting those parameters. Um, I have a number of concerns and it's not, this is not in any way a criticism of the governor. You know, when you're in a, a rough budget, you, you can't do everything you want to do. I think that the, um, the, the drastic cuts to adult day healthcare. I think are, are very troubling to me. These are programs that are lifelines for so many 
seniors. And without them, you could see more seniors going into nursing homes, which is exactly where we don't want people right, to be. Especially now. Yeah, it's, it's always more expensive to do that, but then you have the health problems uh, now. Um, I'm concerned with some of the Medi-Cal uh, uh, reductions and the elimination of certain uh, kinds of health services for Medi-Cal um, uh, recipients. Um, that that's, you know, something that is, uh, uh, challenging for me. Uh, and of course we were doing so well and clawing ourselves out of the deepest of holes for K through 12. Um, and now we could slide back UCCSU. Um, there are some smaller things. There's a hundred million dollar loan the governor's proposing from the AIDS drug assistance program that always sets off alarm bells for me, uh, and for others. Um, there are other issues as well, but those are some of the ones that immediately come. My, oh, I will also say that there is a, a provision stuck deep in the budget that should not be in the budget, um, uh, uh, banning charter schools for anyone 26 and older, um, which I, I that, sh- that should be a policy bill that simply should not be uh, in the budget. Okay, interesting. Thank you. Um, you know, uh, senators have been told to scale their bill packages down. Yep. Um, can you can you talk about you know I guess how your bill package has changed and kind of how your priorities have changed in the face of this uh, crisis and moving? Forward? Yeah. So I had about um, uh, 18 bills that were in the in the Senate in the first house, and we scaled it back to seven. Um, and and then I have a few bills. Uh, I, I have various bills that are in the assembly now, uh, but there are only a few of them that we're going to try to to move. Um, so I. My bill package, I have three, uh, you know, there, there, there are the COVID related issues. So I have a, a COVID bill for, um, for small businesses and nonprofits and a, 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 a moratorium on commercial evictions. And then uh, a provision to specifically help restaurants, bars and cafes who are going to have their capacity slashed, help them renegotiate their rent with their landlords. That's is a controversial bill where we're, Going up against the commercial real estate industry. Um, they don't want us to, you know, try to tell them what to do. Um, but we're trying to work with them to see if we can come up with a resolution there. Um, and then I have, um, uh, a CalFresh bill to expand food access. It's not COVID specific, but it, it resonates a lot more in the, in the era of, uh, of, of COVID. Um, and then I have a, uh, a bill to mandate data collection for uh, the impacts of COVID-19 on the LGBTQ community because the state is collecting, and just like every other state except Pennsylvania, is collecting no data on, uh, no demographic data uh, on LGBTQ impacts. People are asked about their race, their age, their uh, gender when they uh, seek testing or treatment for COVID, but not their sexual orientation and gender identity. And our community has increased health risks. And so it's not acceptable to not collect data. Um, and then I have three housing bills. Housing is still a priority this year. Uh, and I have three uh, pretty impactful bills. Uh, and then a significant mental health addiction um, bill to expand, to require insurance companies to cover more of these services. Um, we have a, a few bills that were focused on in the assembly, but um, those are the ones that are in the Senate now. Um, Scott, I saw you tweet an article out this morning about a local bar in San Francisco called The Stud, I believe it was, uh, yeah. having trouble making their rent. I'm sure that's a big problem in this city with lots of bars and cafes uh, being closed and struggling to, to pay their rent. 
um, kind of what's the understanding of the kind of the, the issues there in the city uh, between the tenants and the landlords trying to figure out how to deal with this kind of unprecedented yeah. situation? Well, it's a terrible situation for many, many, many uh, small businesses, but but perhaps the hardest hit are in the hospitality sector, restaurants, bars, cafes, and it's slightly different issues, but overlapping. So you have restaurants that um, are going to reopen and they're going to be limited number of tables. So you, you're a restaurant with 20 tables, you negotiated your lease and your rent based on the assumption you could fill 20 tables. And now you'll be limited to eight tables just to throw out a number. Um, but yet you are paying the same rent and it becomes completely non-viable. Um, bars are even worse off uh, because at least in restaurants, you can put people at space tables. And so there's some sort of social spacing. Right. Bars are more inherently, um, you know, people are close together, large numbers of people. And so uh, and it's hard to have a socially spaced bars. I'm sure they'll figure out a way. Um, but bars are going to be reopening after restaurants. It's in a subsequent phase. And so it's even more challenging for them. And we have a very real risk we're facing that we're going to see um, a uh, mass extinction of restaurants and bars and cafes that they're simply going to go away. And we're going to come out of COVID, finally, you know, recover, get a hopefully a vaccine or a very effective treatment. And then, you know, the question is, what's what's going to be left? And if, if, if the bulk of the restaurants and bars and cafes are now shut down permanently and their owners are in bankruptcy, then we're going to see a, a huge negative impact on the economy, huge negative impact on our culture because these hospitality businesses matter to our culture. And it's going to harm our neighborhoods uh, because we're going to have all these boarded up storefronts. And so that doesn't work. That, how is that? That's not good for right. anyone. And you have commercial landlords who are doing the right thing and, and are, 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 and I respect it a lot, who are immediately working with their commercial tenants with these restaurants, bars, cafes, um, you know, delaying rent, waiving rent, reducing rent, renegotiating leases, trying to figure out how can we restructure our arrangement so that you have a shot at surviving. But unfortunately, you have a lot of landlords who are refusing to do that. They will not. They will not renegotiate the lease. They won't reduce the rent. Some are even trying to enforce rent increases that are built into the lease. Uh, some are saying, okay, fine, you can delay your rent payments, uh, but you're going to have to pay a late fee to do that. Uh, and so that's why we feel like we have to legislate because we can't let inertia kick in and lose so many of these important businesses. And the stuff... This, and I'm really worried in particular about nightlife. Mm -hmm. These are all small, overwhelmingly small businesses that, sorry, these are overwhelmingly small businesses that are not going to be able to reopen for some time. Uh, and we got to be there for them. Right. And a lot of them have a, a long historical connection to this city. Um, yeah. The interesting thing is, is, you know, there's not going to be businesses there to replace them. So the kind of forcing these bankruptcies and these, uh, evictions is, is kind of strange in the, in the face of this crisis and yeah it's it's you know, on the, my you know it's it's a it seems irrational by these some of these landlords because you know and there's an argument which i understand I'm sensitive to that hey a lot of you know some of these property owners have loan obligations and they may default and we don't want them to default um but the idea that they can just enforce the lease and collect full rent is not reality they're never going to see the full rent. If they insist on full rent, then the businesses will just close and people will go into bankruptcy 
Um, so the choice isn't between full rent and rent re- and reduced rent. It's a choice between reduced rent uh, and no rent. I think that there are some commercial landlords who are probably taking the view, um, I don't want to collect uh, reduced rent if I have to just get rid of this tenant and be vacant for, you know, for a year or two, the economy will come back. And then, you know, after a couple of years, I'll be able to fill it with a high paying tenant. And I don't want to be locked into a low uh, rent for a long time. So I assume that that is the thinking. Interesting. Um, you know, these counties are opening up in phases. Can you kind of describe, I guess, is San Francisco yet in phase two? Um, are restaurants opening or beginning to open? And kind of when do you see, uh, I guess, San Francisco rolling into phase three? Well, the these phases are now going into sub phases. It's not even like a clean phase. 2A, 2B, 2C, or whatever. Um, you know, it's complicated. And San Francisco and the Bay Area are are a little bit behind where the governor is because the governor, of course, is deferring to local to counties to be able to go more slowly than he is authorizing, which makes sense. Um, and so we uh, about a week ago, San Francisco started to allow curbside retail. Um, I just saw I, I didn't watch uh, the governor, what the governor said today, but I saw something on Twitter that allowing for in-store retail. But I don't know when that'll happen in San Francisco. Um, Restaurants are still doing takeout. I don't, I don't, you know, I have to think in, within, I would assume in the next month or so, restaurants will be allowed to do some sort of modified, uh, in restaurant service, but I could be wrong about that. Our director of public health last week, um, said something about a month or so until people could get haircuts. So I, I suspect that over the next three, four, five weeks, we're going to see some changes, um, in, in, in San Francisco around some of these issues. Um, but of course, it's all going to be dependent on, uh, you know, the trends of the virus. Right. Scott, you've been cutting your own hair. Is that correct? I, for the first time in my life, I cut my own hair, uh, a week or so. Was it a week ago? Two weeks ago? Time blends together these days. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, I got, uh, I ordered a clipper and, um, watched a couple of YouTube videos and then cut my own hair and it, it, <laughs> It was uh, quite an adventure. Are you going to continue doing that when the hair salons open again? No, I'm so looking forward to having my guy come here. He, he, you know, I went 11 weeks and I have to say, I, my respect for him went through the roof because after 11 weeks, and of course it's getting a little, you know, it gets a little bit, you know, hard, more challenging to manage after 11 weeks, but it's still, it was holding together pretty well. And that, that's the sign of someone who really knows what they're doing. So I will be going back to get my hair cut from the minute I am able to. Um, you touch upon housing a little bit. I know that's been a big issue uh, for you um, earlier in the year in the past couple sessions, kind of what are your plans looking on housing now with the, the COVID crisis and this kind of shorted, shortened session? Well, COVID uh, has revealed uh, many, uh, well, I should say has cast a very bright light on many pre-existing inequities and problems in society about the lack of an adequate safety net, the lack of worker protections, uh, health inequities. And it has uh, really done so with housing as well. And you see how many people are unstable in their housing renters who are potentially facing eviction who can't pay rent um, and just the outrageous cost of housing and what that means for people um, in a pandemic. And so we're continuing um, to uh, uh, to really uh, focus on housing production. Uh, you know, the, the pro tem uh, has put together a housing package. I have a 
um, of one, it should be eventually be two bills in that package, one to make it easier for cities to quickly rezone for more density if they want to, and one to allow churches and other nonprofits to uh, build affordable housing on their land. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I think we have a chance to do a, str- to put together a strong housing package this year. There are good bills in the Senate. There are good bills in the Assembly. Uh, and I hope we come together and uh, move forward a strong housing package. Uh, change topics on you here real quick before you let you, we let you go. I see you went to Duke University. Are you perchance a, a basketball fan? Uh, I am. I'm not. I, I don't you know follow it as meticulously meticulously as I did uh, you know when I was there or in my twenties. Um, but uh, definitely a Duke fan. I guess what, what what years did you graduate or were you at Duke? Um, I graduated from Duke in 1992. So I was in the same class as uh, Christian Leitner. Wow. Uh, we had a great run. We were in the final four all four years and uh, were national champions in 91 and 92. So it was a, it was a good run. Yeah. Exciting times. Bobby Hurley and Christian Leitner. That's, and Grant yeah, Hill. And, right? and Grant, Grant Hill as well. Yeah. Wow. Did you watch any of the Michael Jordan documentary? Uh, no, I haven't, but uh, I should because uh, you know, actually, you know, as you know, Duke and Carolina yeah, are, are attached, attached at the hip in many ways. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Scott. Really interesting stuff. Is there anything else you think we, you'd like to say before we get out of here? Uh, no, it's just uh, everyone stay healthy. All right. Thank you so much, Scott. Okay. Have a good one. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, and welcome to Sacktown Talks. Today we have Assemblywoman Cecilia Aguiar-Curry from the AD4. Cecilia, thanks for joining us. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, and you? Doing very well. Thanks for asking. Yeah. Um, I guess, you know, we've all been sheltering in place. Uh, can you kind of describe what you've been doing in this shelter in place for the last, I guess, 60 to 70 days it's been? Well, I, I'm not going to lie. The first couple of days was a little bit of an adjustment, trying to figure out which direction we're going and um, listening to our leadership of we we're, we're going to be able to work at home. And then once we got my district offices set up, as well as myself set up at home, um, so actually it's been 12, 10, 12 hour days every single day. I never thought it would be that many hours, but it is. Um, and trying to answer all our constituents' issues, um, as you can imagine, you know, particularly from anything from EDD to Small Business Administration to the COVID, um, you know, it just, it's really run the gambit. And um, in uh, defense of my district office, you know, you never think that you have to be an expert in all these new um, things. So it's been pretty challenging, yeah, but it's good. And it's, uh, it's, it's an honor to work for these constituents of the 4th District. Uh, you know, talking to some of your legislative colleagues, they've described how they've kind of used digital medium a lot more recently. Um, you know, is that something you've turned to lately, kind of using Facebook, Twitter, Instagram to kind of reach out to your constituents? Well, in this district, six counties, so it's quite large. And so um, we do, do use Facebook, uh, Twitter, Instagram, any way we can get information out, we do so. And we also are lucky enough that, and I guess I shouldn't say lucky, but we've had um, four disasters in my district. Uh, the past couple of years, all the fires. So um, we really understand how to work in a disaster. Um, And I almost feel like we're a uh, well-greased machine um, because we have to really understand so many aspects of any kind of a disaster. Although this one's different, it's not like a fire where you can see maybe it's gonna go out eventually. And this has, doesn't seem to have any end. So it's a a different look at it. So you have to really make sure your constituents are informed and you try to use any avenue possible. 
Um, but I will say my county office of emergency services and my counties have been phenomenal on helping get the information out. So uh, we're a big partnership and that's what it's got to be in these times of uh, these difficult times. I guess, yeah, you guys are battle tested. You guys have been through a lot the last couple of years. Yeah, we are battle tested. I can show you my scars if you want. You're well prepared. Yeah. Uh, you know, just a little background on you. You were the mayor of Winters before you got to office. Kind of, kind of what traits uh, did you use as mayor of Winters to be able to come to, come to the assembly and kind of you know, branch out to your, your bigger district? Well, I'll tell you, I think um, it was quite surprising um, to myself as well as my colleagues from the big urban areas. Um, when you are a mayor or a council, per, uh, council person from a small community, you really are a lot of hands-on because you only have, generally, you hope you have a, um, a city manager and financial planner within the city, and then you might have some of the works um, for the sanitation district or whatever. And so you're hands-on because you don't necessarily have an economic development department. And um, luckily, I was mentored by my um, city manager was really good at walking us through the process, all council members, and you really learn a lot because I could talk about infrastructure, I can talk about police and fire, you know, parks, wrecks, um, streets, you learn it all. And I'm not given a packet before I go to council. I didn't have staff, so I had to read it, I had to understand it, I had to pick up the phone. And all those skills came together, and so I was shocked how prepared I was for the assembly. And I think um, some of the lobbyists were shocked that someone from a small town actually knew what she was talking about. So, and then I'm also a farmer. So I've been in the farming industry with my brothers and my father and my brothers and I own 80 acres of uh, walnuts. And uh, so I understand that part of it. So, um, you know, I think being a little bit older, I'll say a little older uh, than my colleagues, I have a lot of uh, stories and life uh, uh, stories to tell people. So I was prepared. You, you appeal to all. <laughs> um, you know, you, you guys were recently called back into the legislature. Can, it, can you kind of describe, I guess, how it's been being back in session and kind of what, what it's been like? Well, um, first of all, it was difficult for me to initially go back. And I had to be quite honest with the speaker because um, I was concerned about my health and my family's health. And going back, I want to make sure the protocols were in place so that I felt comfortable going back. And it took a little bit of time because I don't think some of even my colleagues understood um, how, uh, how, how difficult this whole virus thing is when we don't really know the story. And I wanted to make sure it was safe when we went back in. So eventually, with some time, we ended up agreeing that how you enter the building, making sure you had a mask at all times, um, that you only have two people in your office yourself and one person from your staff could be in the office. Um, but I, what I miss the most is the collaboration. Right. I miss my colleagues not having conversations and laughing. It's difficult to have a good joke when you have a mask on. It kind of really, right. are they smiling or are they not smiling? And you're trying to look at their eyes. Um, and then, you know, um, trying to figure out your bills. Um, I initially started with, I think, like 22 bills. And I had to come to the realization is that I, what was it the governor wants? And he made it clear earlier on is that um, he would be supportive of things related to disaster. And gosh only knows, I've had four disasters in my district just for the fires. Um, I had to figure out something with COVID. Were any of my bills, you know, work with the COVID issue and also homelessness. 
So I went through my bills and I had, I was really excited about my bill package this year. It had a really incredible stuff, but I really had to be reasonable. I had to make sure that um, how much was it going to cost. So I went from um, 18 bills, I think 19 bills, and I have maybe seven left. Wow. And um, most of them don't cost the state very much money. In fact, one of them actually generates revenue. So um, that was the hardest part going back is that, you know, it's not having that, those conversations with your colleagues or even the lobbyists or the special interest groups that came in. I miss them, believe it or not. <laughs> yeah, the, the collaboration, you know, the hallways are always packed and people stop. Yeah. And, you know, mm-hmm. that's not happening anymore. Yeah, you miss that. You do miss it. Are you keeping, you know, one or two staff in? I know some members aren't having any staff at all inside when they're there. Um, kind of, how are you, I guess, handling your staff in this kind of remote mm-hmm. work situation? Well, um, we have uh, one staff will be in the office with me when I'm there. So it's either my chief of staff, John Ferreira, or my ledge director, Angela Pontis. That's it. And um, I will tell you, special services knocks on your door every day you're there to make sure there's only two people in there. Mm-hmm. So I appreciate that, that they're watching out after us because you just don't know. Um, you know, people in these trying times don't know how to express their um, grief or disdain for um, those of us in public service. So uh, they've been keeping good eye on us, but it is a very lonely place. Um, you know, as a former mayor, you're chair of the local government committee. Can, mm-hmm. I, can you describe, I guess, the challenges cities are going to have uh, kind of balancing their budget and going forward? You know, what are their options? Well, it is really difficult because, like, you know, I remember sitting at the diocese of mayor and wondering, what was the state thinking, you know? And, you know, why were there cuts? And, and now being on the other side, I understand. So in my heart and soul still in local government. So initially this year, they came, um, my, the bills that came through were almost 90 bills that came through. And we slowly went through those bills because we knew that the cities and counties are going to be strapped. And they depend upon some funding from the state of California and support from the state, um, as well as the federal government. Um, during that period of time, um, I asked all my colleagues that had any other bills that were coming to local government is to really give it some thought of what bills that they would be willing to hold back for next year or to figure a way that they didn't uh, affect and hit the budget too bad at those cities, uh, local government. So um, I met um, numerous times with uh, League of California Cities, uh, CSAC, uh, Special Districts. Uh, I worked with them as like, what is it going to take to keep you guys going? And some were, don't cut this, don't cut this, special mandates. And so we went through the bills that were coming before us, and uh, probably about 40 of them, um, other of my legislator friends said, I'm not going to run this bill this year, I understand. And then there were some I had to be a little more tough on some people, saying, you know, taking away impact fees really affects the city. Um, so I had to really go through each one of those. We ultimately only saw 12 bills wow. out of like the 89. And um, uh, we only can hope that the federal government backfills and helps out the cities and counties. Um, right now, small cities are, you know, millions in the hole. Um, you know, when you expect uh, transit op- occupancy tax, um, Many of my areas is back up, uh, excuse me, Napa, some of our tourism places that just depend on that money, uh, gas tax money, uh, sales tax, all those things add up. And uh, the cities kind of try to um, forecast what they might be doing. 
and how much we're becoming the city and going from a figure down to basically nothing is just detrimental to how a government runs in your small city. So, um, you know, we're all, we're working on that. We're trying to make sure that um, uh, we dot our I's, cross our T's to make sure that cities can become whole, but it's going to take a long time. Um, and I think the public won't get it until the day we can't hire enough police or fire. Um, that pothole that they complained about, it's going to take even longer to get filled. Um, you know, we're trying to keep sewer, sewer system uh, costs down, a waste uh, costs down. There's so much in the city. So uh, I think we're trying to be innovative. We're trying to figure out different ways to get money to come into the cities. Um, and I think we have to look at our income differently coming to cities. I mean, you know, I'm thinking about um, the big companies in the Bay Area are now telling some of their employees you can work at home. That impacts the big cities, but it also impacts small cities where people are moving to. So there's a lot going on in local government. Um, the other day, you guys met as a committee as a whole to go over the state budget. Uh, mm -hmm. you know, the governor's proposal had a $54 billion deficit. Yeah. You know, it looks like the Senate's doing some creative things to kind of shortchange that. And I guess, what are your thoughts on the budget and kind of what are you looking at to kind of change in the budget? Well, you know, as you, as you can imagine, in January, um, we all have these aspirations of what, what can happen and having trying to have vision and trying to be thinking outside the box and how are we going to move California even farther ahead than anywhere else in the nation, right? right. And then to be hit by the COVID, um, we really learned some lessons that we weren't prepared. And now we've got to figure out how we're going to get back on our feet. So the, um, the, the meeting at the assembly the other day um, gave us an opportunity, I think, to kind of vent. And, um, and I'm hoping, and I, I would imagine the governor's office was paying attention to what were the important things for each one of us. Um, some people were really specific on what they wanted. Um, I have kept my, my line is I, from day one, I'm always into internet or broadband for all. Uh, infrastructure and healthcare, and my bills have always shown that um, I did the telehealth bill this year, and that change has changed the lives of many people during this pandemic. Um, it is uh, given opportunities for people to go see the doctor without sitting in a doctor's office and maybe getting sick. So the telehealth bill was fabulous. Working on broadband, and I've done that for. 12 years probably since I was in winters, um, trying to get internet for all. Right. And unfortunately it took a disaster for people to wake up to say, you're right, Cecilia, we do need internet for all. So we passed a bill three years ago and it still hasn't been implemented. And now I'll be doing some policy to force people to uh, do internet for all. I mean, Right now we're looking for job creation, we're looking for training, we're looking for telehealth, we're looking for, you name it, mm -hmm. and we're all intertwined on this on internet, so. Um, it, it was interesting how you described that as the venting. It, watching it, you know, everyone got four minutes and kind of gave their speech. Um, yeah. A couple people had unique uh, takes on possible new revenue schemes. Um, mm -hmm. you know, do you guys think that they'll seriously be considering some of these new revenue schemes? You know, people were mentioning uh, vaping tax, sports betting, some of, you know, these sin taxes coming in. <laughs> Um, you know, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see what they're going to come up for revenue. I mean, I had a bill this, uh, that I'm still trying to get through is on um, CBD, hemp, and uh, that's a multi-billion dollar industry, and um, 
it's got held up because people are concerned about the testing. And we've tried to address the testing. And I think now maybe uh, people are saying, uh, she's right. We should be looking at doing hemp here because right now you can buy CBD at CVS. You can buy it at your health food store or your veterinarian. Right. And it's coming from out of state and no one knows what it's been tested. So I proposed a, a bill that would actually do the testing and actually bring it to market in California. So am I going to still work on that? Absolutely. Because that to me is like a no brainer. Obviously we need to get the testing down. I'm, I'm totally for that. Safety is number one, but the longer we talk about it and not implement or do something about it, the longer it's going to take to get some revenue to come in. Um, I have a, a small revenue bill that's on for nesting birds and basically it's on the duck stamp. You pay an extra $5 and it helps um, for um, uh, waterfowl. Right. Seems like simple. I mean, it seems pretty like, oh, Cecilia, is that really that important? But it is because, you know, there's many people that love the outdoors and want to reduce greenhouse gases and they want to make sure that we protect our environment. And for $5 on a duck stamp, hey, why not? Right. Yeah. So, I, you know, I think... Um, I kind of look at this as an opportunity. I mean, I want everyone to have a job, don't get me wrong. And you know that 40% of small businesses are really gonna have a tough time getting back on their feet. But I think we have an opportunity if we can get internet everywhere. Because in my small town of Winters, homes were going to be built, and I was on the dais as the city, as a mayor, and I said to the developer, with a handshake, I said, will you put in the conduit for internet? And he did. And it raised, he, his houses went for $4,000 more. And now there's families moving into the neighborhoods. And they are now, they can work at home. I mean, who would have thought they were going to be working at home? And they're saying, oh my God, I'm so glad to move to this neighborhood. We should have internet at all places. But these small communities should take this as an opportunity um, because people are going to stay local now. They're not going to be jumping in the car and going to another big town. We need to make sure we have coffee shops and delis and uh, computer repair stores or whatever it might be in your community. So I think we all have to look at it differently and um, it can be done. It just has to be creative. Yeah, that's an interesting topic you brought up about the internet. Growing up in a rural area myself, it was never good. It was always spotty, always going out. Um, kind of you hearing about these new technologies, 5G, things like that. Um, is that going to make it easier to implement this internet for, for all with kind of these wireless internet technologies? No, I mean, I think people's heart were in the right place, but you need better connectivity than a 5G or a little box. I mean, you, fiber is by far the best way to go. And we know that that's it. And you're downloading so much information and you want to be able to make sure that everyone in your household, if they're working at home or taking classes at a JC or university that they can download their information so you need really reliable affordable um, uh, connectivity and in our rural areas as you know you can watch a little dial spin and spin and spin and then in the even evenings in some small towns you might have connectivity in the day when kids aren't home watching netflix but the minute everyone comes home and starts playing games and stuff you can just watch your level go right. down so um it's not a one size fits all. So I just want to make that clear. You can, I think we have to look at everything. So could it be satellite? Could it be 5G? Could it be whatever the case that works in a community? But we've got to embrace it and not say, point the finger at everyone. Let's not point the finger at um, 
some of the big vendors, we're all responsible for this. We all need to take, uh, take action to make sure that everybody has connectivity. And it's not just rural, as much as I'm the big rural gal, and I'll tell everyone about rural, but you know what, there's spots in our urban areas as well that don't have it. And Los Angeles has spots that don't have connectivity. So um, it can be, we need to have it everywhere. So yeah, it's a, it's a big one to me. Uh, it was interesting. I was reading an article the other day about kind of the tourism in, in Napa specifically, and I guess the greater oh. area around you about the, uh, I guess, amount of hotel rooms, restaurants, um, and the like kind of, I guess, empty now, um, mm-hmm. kind of uncertain in the future. Are, are you doing anything to, to work with them on kind of rebounding or helping, I guess, ease rents or anything like that? Well, we've been trying, we've been all working on that. And, you know, I, we do, um, the counties have really taken this on because it, obviously they depend upon that income coming in for to run their programs in the counties. Um, on our part, we are really looking at the direction of Governor Newsom. It's like, when can you open up? Uh, the time frames they can open up? What are the protocols to open up? And I think that the, um, the locals are, they're anxious to open up, but they're also want, are hesitant because they're being in a tourism area. You're bringing in a lot of people that you don't know who they are, right? right. You don't know, have they, are they bringing in the COVID? Um, you know, so there's gotta, it's gonna take some time for them to get on board. Um, I think the federal government by the funding that they were given through the CARES Act has been helpful for many people. But again, that's, you know, there's a lot of decisions that these businesses have to make in the short period of time. Um, so um, we're working on like the evictions, trying to make sure that uh, there's a, a couple of bills that are running in the Senate related to uh, small businesses and helping them with making sure they don't get evicted from their, the, uh, where they rent or lease currently. So there's some stuff that's going on. Um, I personally am not running any of those bills because I really trust the couple of people that are running those. So, yeah, but you know, everyone's got their hands on. We're working on right now with uh, Napa County on a couple of issues they have regarding the new, the budget that's been proposed, the May revision. So we're, our fingers in are in six counties. Um, can you kind of describe, I guess, like how many cases of the total would you estimate that uh, COVID cases were in your district? Um, you know, I do have that figure. I can't remember off the top. Um, I want to say a couple hundred. Okay, so uh, Yolo County, yeah, it was relatively small. Yolo County uh, had a, uh, uh, a convalescent home that got hit pretty hard. I think they had 22 deaths there. Um, but all in all, um, we did have deaths. There's no doubt about it within the district nothing like anyone else mm-hmm. you know what do you attribute that to um the rural area more space between people not dense i don't i don't know yeah, but i think that unknown, yeah yeah but i think we really spent um a lot of time is i know locally in my little town i watch people walk by every single day they have a mask on still and they have children with the mask on so um you know some people took it very seriously and there's Plenty of people that just continue to think it's a conspiracy, and I just say I'm sorry, but I still expect you to wear a mask. Yeah, I guess do you regularly? I guess since you represent six different counties with yeah. six different health officers, um, or I guess are you regular communication with all six, and you know mm-hmm. differing opinions on on moving forward? Kind of how how is that working out? So um, my district office um, attends every county's office emergency services meetings. So they have call-ins, some like Napa County has one almost every single day. 
Yolo County has them. So I have everyone assigned to a different one because there's just so many meetings going on. I can't attend all of them. Right. Um, but we have a really good relationship with the Department of Health. What I thought was really brilliant is that um, the Office of Emergency Services uh, worked as the, the hub and each county Department of Health would contact Office of Emergency Services. Instead of having hundreds of people, it was just the Department of Health from each county and they would work and um, like organize how to get PPE and you'd go through them. So there was a process that was put in place. It took a couple of tries to do it right. But once we all agreed on how to funnel that kind of information, it worked well. But the Department of Health have been really good. Um, some are more vocal than others. Uh, some were, um, I had to pride, prod them a little bit and say, uh, would you like testing? I mean, I can help you get testing. Well, I don't know if we're going to need it. I'm thinking, just take it. I just offered you something. Right, yeah. Yeah. So, That's interesting. But, but we're lucky. You know, the governor's laid out, I guess, these four stages um, and every county's kind of moving through them. It kind of looks like yeah. stage two is a, is a multi-stage uh, step. Are, are all six-year counties, I guess, in the same part of stage two? Um, are they kind of in varying levels? Varying levels. Um, there are some that are much more conservative moving forward and making sure they've got their I's dotted. They don't want the liability. And then I have one that just basically wrote a letter today that I saw that just said, we're doing it our way. And I wouldn't recommend that. Right. <laughs> um, you know, um, the governor will remember that. Right. <laughs> you know, so um, I have one that just wrote a letter and I, I just shake my head because, um, yeah, I just like, let's, come on, you know. Right. The county will go nameless, but we know who you are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's no sense, sense of bringing them in. But, you know, I mean, you know, all in all, people have been really, you know, respectful, you know, and sometimes I just go when I see someone that is being disrespectful, I just say, oh, your mother didn't teach you well. <laughs> yeah. funny. Um, yeah. how, how are the crops doing, Cecilia? You have everything planted, ready to go for the summer? Oh, my gosh. It, well, it's kind of funny that you say this. Uh, you know, when you go, when you drive into uh, Sacramento each morning, it's such a beautiful ride right now because corn's coming up and the sunflowers are coming up and then I drive by my ranch and I see oh we have we're trying to put in some trees right now and trying to find the workers and trying to find um, the pumps and all, everything that's going to go into uh, putting in 20 acres of almonds this time has been a real challenge and and um, the workers are just not there and because you, you depend upon so many people like the you know the, the watering system guy and like and so uh, we thought we'd have our plants in in March and we're at almost June and you don't have them in and you got to be careful when you plant trees. Uh, they don't always like the heat. Right. And so we might have to back it up until November to plant, but um, the crops are doing well. You know, the main thing now is to make sure we have our processing plants up and running, that we have a, a workforce that can do that. Um, you know, we're all concerned about the supply chain. We're concerned about um, trade. Um, almonds and uh, walnuts trading it right now it, uh, used to be traded to Asia, India, and uh, we're having difficulty getting our product there. It's become kind of a scapegoat, you know. Um, people are leveraging different things and it doesn't help what the federal government's doing with trade. So, right, interesting. So, the yeah. and all the federal things are affecting. Oh my gosh, yeah. You, the walnut you, farmers. Yeah, yeah, and I'm just a small walnut farmer. <laughs> 
Well, if you ever need help shelling, you know, just let me know. Okay, well. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Cecilia. I guess, is there anything else you want to touch on before we go? No, I want to thank you for having me today. Um, you know, I, I tell people when I visit with them, I said, you know, government does work. We work really hard for you. Um, you know, I don't consider myself a politician. I consider myself a, um, a public health. I'm a, a public servant. Yeah, public health too. Public yeah, servant. Yeah, you are. And yeah. I, you know, and I just, I, I just love it. And the day I don't like this job, I'm out of here. <laughs> yeah. You, you yeah. So thank you for having me. All right. Well, thank you so much. Okay. We'll talk to you later. Okay. Bye bye. Thank you so much for Senator Scott Weiner and Assembly Member Cecilia Aguiar Curry joining us today. Hope you enjoyed the episode. Until next time.